If you have a Bible, you could turn with me this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And <clears throat> uh, let's pray together one more time before we get started. Father, I just ask for grace and help now to preach your word. I just pray that you would remind us, God, of what a high calling it is to be made in the image of God, a child of the Most High. I pray, God, that you would remind us of our great need of you this morning and the great hope that we have, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ, our King who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who reigns forevermore, in whom is all our hope and peace. Be honored and glorified now in us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Little K. Little K. And the reason it's a little K is because we're going to be talking about the period of the kings in Israel. First and second kings, first and second chronicles, if you're familiar with those books. Now, if you remember, as we've talked about in the past, man was created with a high calling. Adam was created in God's image, and we said that that meant that, it, that Adam was a bearer of God's authority. That is, wherever God, wherever Adam was, uh, the creation was to see Adam as an image bearer of God and, and know that wherever Adam was, God reigns there. That's why God commands Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, to have dominion over the earth, to rule over it with God's good authority. And so God, in real sense, made Adam his king. And made the whole earth his realm, but Adam failed in this task. He rebelled against God. God made a plan, God had a plan from before the foundation of the world to restore uh, humanity from their fallen estate, particularly through the family of one man, a man named Abraham. And if you remember the story of Abraham, he promised Abraham a land, a nation. A dwelling place. He he also promised him kings, that kings would come from him. And that, in a real sense, Israel was to be a picture of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom reborn, if you will. But it didn't quite work out that well. That's what we're going to talk about this morning uh, in the kingdom of God. So, if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's words. From Deuteronomy chapter 17. Beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. 
since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three things from our passage this morning. Number one, the great calling of the kingdom. Number two, the great falling of the kingdom. And number three, the great hope of the kingdom. The great calling of the kingdom, the great falling of the kingdom, and the great hope of the kingdom. First, the great calling of the kingdom. In this passage in Deuteronomy, so this is actually in Deuteronomy. So this is before Israel even enters into the promised land. It's, it's actually, a, in many ways, it's a prophecy because Moses explicitly foretells what would happen after the period of the judges. And that is that they would ask for themselves a king like the rest of the nations. And God already at this time he approves of it, and he says, not their heart in asking for a king, but he approves in giving them a king. But here in Deuteronomy, long before they ever had a king, he tells them what this king must be like. It must be a man who is chosen by God. He was not to be a warmonger or to acquire for himself many horses, which would have been um, a bit like a defense spending, if you will. He was not to acquire many wives, which was the downfall of the two greatest kings in Israel, David and Solomon. He was not to accumulate for himself vast wealth. He was to be a student of God's word. He was literally to copy word for word the entire book of the law for himself. And he was to study it. And especially, he says, he was not to consider himself above his people or above the law simply because he was a king. You see, all the other kings of all the other nations viewed themselves as higher than their citizens. In fact, many of the, the kings in the surrounding nations of Israel and, and Egypt and, and otherwise viewed themselves as gods or as offspring of the gods. They were, they were on an, another level. They were not... They were high above their citizens, but the Hebrew king was not supposed to be that way. He was supposed to remember that he was dust, just like his other citizens, just like the other. He was not above the law. Being Israel's king was not merely a place of honor. It was a place of service. And if you remember, the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. And Saul was disobedient to God. He took, rather than a trusting in God's word, he took things into his own hands. He offered a sacrifice that he was not supposed to offer. He, he did not utterly destroy their enemies in one instance like he was supposed to. <coughs> he took God's word lightly. And he disobeyed it. 
And later in his life, he became consumed with jealousy against David, who was gaining in popularity. And this jealousy consumed him till he, I mean, almost you could say he was insane. Utterly driven by a desire to kill David. Burning with anger and rage. And at the end, shortly before the end of his life, he even went to a medium to consult with the dead. Which, in God's sight, was a very evil, wicked thing. And it's, it's a clear way in which we're, it we're shown how far Saul had fallen. That he would go to a medium rather than to God. So God rejected Saul in the Bible, and he chose a man, a, a young man named David. And he told Samuel to go to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and to anoint one of his sons as kings. But the Lord gave Samuel a little warning before he went in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what God cares about. People of their day, they just wanted a handsome, strapping warrior. But God says what you need is a man of character, of holiness, of integrity. That's the measure of a man, not how good he looks. Women, his integrity, man's looks will fade away. His character is what matters. God raised up this man named David, and he was not merely a king, but in a real sense, he became the king of Israel. God made a covenant with him, which we talked about a few weeks ago. That David's lineage would reign over the house of Israel forever. That he would have a descendant. His offspring would sit on the throne of Israel forever. But there was a condition of this in 1 Kings 8.25. It says, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father. This is Solomon praying. Keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not like a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. So, in one sense, it's unconditional. The promise was unconditional. God was going to make sure it was going to happen no matter what. In another sense, it was conditional. Uh, it, It required a faithful offspring of David. It required someone to keep the the commandments of what it meant to be a king. For God to set him up and establish him forever on David's throne. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But David became the gold standard of the kings. And so after his death, in this long period of the kings, if you've read 1 and 2 Kings before, the kings are evaluated based on how well... They follow the example of David. In, in 1 Kings eleven thirty four and following, this is what it says. It says, uh, this is God uh, talking about uh, Solomon. Because Solomon, in his old age, rebelled against God. His many wives led him into idolatry, and he set up uh, altars to false gods right there in Jerusalem. 
And this is the result. It says, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, that is Solomon's hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. Here, here uh, God is talking to Jeroboam. Uh, Jerob- so because Solomon sinned against God, God was going to take the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, but do it in the days of his son Rehoboam and then he was going to give the other ten tribes of Israel to a man named Jeroboam who would be the king over the northern tribes and so God here is talking to Jeroboam and he says but I will give the king I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you ten tribes yet to his son Rehoboam I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So what God is saying is that he will he will he if Jeroboam obeyed like David did he would make his house sure as well. We see David is the gold standard of kings. And what we see here as well is that the kings of Israel were to be responsible Unto God for the same in the same in the same way they they represented, if you will, the whole nation of Israel before God. And that's what it says. It says in verse 38 there, it said, If you will listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my commandments. Well that that wasn't just for the kings. The whole nation of Israel was supposed to do that. In the, in the covenant, in Deuteronomy, all over the place, God tells the whole nation of Israel to do that. But then as it, as it moves on to the period of the kings, we see it, it focuses especially on how the king is supposed to do that. That is, the king, in a very real sense, represented the whole nation of Israel before God. Whichever direction the king took, so the whole nation would go. As went the king, so went the whole nation. And so what we can learn here is the high calling of the kingdom. The kings represented Israel to God. And in, the, in, a, in a sense, the whole, the whole identity of the nation was wrapped up in their king. And, and there's a lesson for us here too, is that we, as as image bearers of God and as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the same high calling. We are bearers of God and Christ's authority. We are, in a real sense, kings and queens under the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All of us, without exception, bear an innate authority in the different spheres of influence that we have in our lives, in your families, in your workplaces, in your friend groups, in your church, 
you as a bearer of God's image bear a specific authority and influence within the various groups. Everybody, without exception in this room, you have people who look up to you and to your example. And if you go a certain direction, chances are they're going to go too. And so, no, there's no such thing as an isolated sin. See, we, just, we have this serious problem where we think that if I just sin, it's just my problem. It's not just your problem. People are watching you. And when you sin, it's always, always going to hurt somebody else. Always. Even if you think it's a private sin. We have a high calling. And... and and it's, just, it's a great burden that we bear because we bear the burden not only of our own sin, but also to a degree we bear the burden of others who will follow us into that sin when, we, when our sin leads them into sin. With great, respons- with great power and authority comes great responsibility. And the opposite, of course, is true too. We're, it's, it's possible... And by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, you can and should be bearing your authority for good. In other words, you ever been in a situation where something happens and no one knows what to do, but then someone just steps out and does the right thing and everyone else follows along? And there are many situations in your life where just people are sitting there waiting, watching, waiting for the one person to do the right thing in their family. In their workplace, in the job situation, whatever it is. Waiting for one person to do the right thing, to step up and lead in righteousness. And when you do, what happens is other people will follow along in that. We are kings and queens, says the Bible, in the fullest, in the, the most real sense. We have a great privilege and calling as Christians and, and it's when we belittle how great a calling we have as Christians that we don't take, we begin to, we begin to take God and his commands lightly. Think about, again, you, you, we talked about Saul. Think about Saul. He was a king. He was a king. But what did he do? He didn't take himself seriously. He was supposed to be king and he was hiding out behind the baggage. Right? And they had to call him up to, 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 to anoint him as king. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to come before he offered sacrifices, but he got in a hurry. He, he, did, he was supposed to destroy. He was supposed to dis- utterly destroy the Amalekites, but he left them for sacrifices because he thought he could play willy-nilly with God's commands. He didn't take himself seriously. He didn't take his position as king seriously, so he thought it was just suggestions and not commands from God. When we don't take our high calling seriously, when we don't take ourselves seriously, we'll take sin lightly. We have a high calling as Christians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, oh, they were having all kinds of problems at the church at Corinth. And one of the problems was that they were suing one another in the church. They were taking, the, they were taking their problems to the secular court of law because the Holy Spirit wasn't enough to help them solve their problems so they had to take it to a non-believer to solve their problems within the church. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? You see what Paul's saying? He's saying we have a high calling. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus says this, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What Paul is saying is this. We're going to judge the world. Literally, with renewed minds and with totally, with, with re- resurrected bodies and minds free from sin by the power of God. That we will, we will sit on thrones with Jesus Christ himself and we will meet out the judgment due fallen angels. And we can't discern rightly problems amongst ourselves and solve them. It's a great calling that we have of the kingdom. So number one, the great calling of the kingdom. Number two, the great falling of the kingdom. First Kings eleven four. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant. And for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So, if you follow the story of David and Solomon, what you see is that the kingdom reached its height. It reached its pinnacle in the kingdoms of David and especially Solomon. Uh, They were prosperous. They ruled over their enemies. Uh, Israel had multiplied and filled the whole land. Uh, In other words, it was as if, especially during the days of Solomon, it was as if God had fulfilled all that he had promised. The kingdom of God was here. Uh, Israel was the largest in terms of, of, of land that it has ever been. More prosperous. It says that during the days of Solomon, silver was like, is worthless. Because they had so much gold. 
is it was as if the kingdom of God had come in its fullness. And yet, Solomon in his old age, he broke for he broke faith with the high calling that he had been given. He explicitly disobeyed the commandments that God had given through Moses in Deuteronomy that we read at the beginning about having many wives. He set up altars to false gods and followed right along uh, with, with down the paths of the other nations. You see, the very king who had been so wise in his youth, it's, it's, it's opposite of what you think. We think of old age, you get wisdom, but it's not always true. He was wise and humble in his youth because he realized that he needed God, but he grew proud in his old age. You never get too old for temptation. And he became proud and arrogant, idolatrous old man. But God, in mercy for David, waited a generation before snatching away the kingdom. And after Solomon died, if you remember, the kingdom split into two. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah. So they were called Israel in the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And uh, Rehoboam maintained the, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam received the northern kingdom of Israel. And per the passage that we read earlier, again, God made this incredible promise to Jeroboam. If he would be faithful to God, if he would trust God, God would make his house sure, just like he had promised David. But Jeroboam didn't trust God. Jeroboam didn't trust God's word. And so what happened? He, Jeroboam feared that because the temple was in Jerusalem, which was in Judah, the kingdom of Judah, that as the people of Israel would travel down to Judah during the feast times and worship in the temple, he believed that it would turn the hearts of the people back to the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, rather than trusting God, he became proud and arrogant. And in order to prevent the people of Israel from going into Jerusalem to worship, he set up two altars. He made a golden calf and set up two altars in the northern and the southern part of his kingdom so that they would worship there. And what happens after that is that um, those two altars become the stumbling block to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel for the entire rest of their history. And Jeroboam, become, just as David was the gold standard of righteousness for kings, Jeroboam becomes the standard of wickedness for kings. For example, in 1 Kings 15, 34, talking about Ahijah, it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin, which he made Israel to sin, that is the idolatry of the golden calves. In 1 Kings twenty-two fifty-two, about Ahaziah, it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. You see, Jeroboam, he set up these two altars, and literally, it led the, nation, the northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry for the next several hundred years. Because of his one act. You see, your decisions have consequences. Not just for you, but for future generations. 
And if you know the story of Israel, you know that the southern kingdom, they had, they had good kings and they had bad kings. The, all the kings of the north were bad. But the southern kingdom had a number of good kings sprinkled in that preserved them a little bit longer than the northern kingdom of Israel. But eventually, too, the southern kingdom of Israel fell into idolatry. The northern kingdom of Israel was conquered and exiled by the nation of Assyria in 722 B.C. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And what we learn from Kings, the story of Kings is this, is that we learn of the inability of Israel in particular and humanity in general, our inability to keep God's covenant. Our hearts are so bent and are are so broken and bent towards worshiping anything and everything else besides God that we always turn away from him. We cannot keep his commands as we ought. We cannot trust him. We cannot love him as we ought. Israel's story is really just a remake of the Garden of Eden, right? God gave Adam and Eve a land. God made them kings of the world. God gave them a command to spread his glory over all the earth. But they rebelled against the God who set them up and established them. So what did God do to Adam and Eve? He kicked them out of the garden. What did God do to Israel? He kicked them out of the land. They were exiled for their rebellion. What what Kings does, it does the same thing that the story of Adam and Eve does. It reminds us that we need a Savior. We cannot obey God's commands. We cannot keep his covenant. We cannot be faithful, wholly faithful from the heart to him. We need someone who can, who can be our king, who can represent us before God, who can succeed where we fail so that not because we succeed, but because we have a king who succeeds for us, we can stand in the presence of God and say, God, for his sake, have mercy on us. Look upon our king and have mercy on me. And this is a warning for us who are Christians, who do know Christ. It's a warning for us to stay the course. In Hebrews 6, it says, this it says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the, until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is, and that for we who do know Christ, we can't be like Solomon. We have to hold fast to the end. You'll face, if the Lord lets you live any length of time, you're going to face a lot of temptation in your life. You're going to endure a lot of wrongs from people. You're going to feel, you're going to see a lot of sin rise up in your own heart and you're going to wonder how that can be. But we have to hold fast to God and to Christ. We have to trust in Him because He's our only hope. A good, kind, and merciful King to represent us before God. Jesus is our only hope. And if we let go of Him, we have no hope. 
Yes, the world will let us down. People will let us down. But Jesus Christ will never let us down. We have to put all our hope in him and we can't let go to him because if we let go before the end. John says they went out from among us because they were not of us. And if we, if we fizzle out before the finish, there's no kingdom of God for us. The great calling of the kingdom, the great falling of the kingdom. But number three, the great hope of the kingdom. The great hope of the kingdom. 2 Kings 25. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. These are the last verses of the book of Second Kings. And it seems like a strange and unusual little story to tack on at the very end that the that the remaining, the last, the, the remaining king of Judah, Jehoi, Jehoiachin, the, the, the direct descendant of David, has been exiled to Babylon. He was imprisoned the entire lifespan of Nebuchadnezzar. But this little story at the end is tacked on. And that is after Nebuchadnezzar passes and his son, evil Merodach, takes the throne, he, he raises up David's descendant, David's offspring out of prison. And lets him dine at his table with the other kings. Why is this significant? Why would the author of Kings want to make sure that he includes this little story right at the very end after he has just described how the, na- the, the, whole, the whole nation of Israel has been exiled from the promised land because of their sin? Why is this significant? Because God made David a promise. He made a promise that his dynasty would last forever. And so think about God is superintending history. And by his sovereign hand and providence, hundreds of years after David has died, it looks like all hope is lost. The kingdom of Israel has been totally obliterated. Jerusalem has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. There is no hope for the people of God. But then the surviving king is raised up, freed from prison, and set at the king's table. It's because of God's promise. You see, God told Jeroboam, whom he initially gave the northern kingdom after the north-south split, he told him again that he would not give Every, give him every tribe of Israel. But, 1 Kings eleven thirty five, I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands and give it, give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that my David's servant, uh, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. God refuses to put out David's lamp. So what does the story tell us? 
This little story tells us this, is that despite, despite all the sin of Israel, God has not forgotten his promise. God is not going to put out David's lamp. In the same way, it's really a lot like the story of Samson. Remember Samson? He fell as far as you could fall, also due to a woman. And he, he got his eyes put out. But then the author, the author adds this little detail. He says, then his hair began to grow again. He's given us a little bit of hope. And here at the end of this story, the author has given us hope that David's lamp will not be put out. What does that mean? It means God's still got a king coming. A descendant of David who will reign on his throne forever. And that takes us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 11. And Josiah, you know Josiah? King Josiah of Judah, the father of Jeconiah. It's another, it's an alternate name for Jehoiachin. The father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father, father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and so on and so on and so on, until the father of Jesus, the Christ. God is not going to put out David's lamp. God raised up Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, from the prison of Babylon to let all the world know that he's not done. With Israel. He's not done with his people. Our sin, no matter how great, can invalidate God's promise. God has a king. Jesus, God has sent his son. The one whom the Bible calls the second Adam. 2,000 years ago. In Israel. In Bethlehem. Six miles outside of Jerusalem. You can hop on a plane and fly there. He was born of a virgin. The baby's baby's cry rang out that first Christmas day. The angels sang a song about it, an angelic choir to the angels. The angel told Mary that you shall name him Jesus, which is uh, uh, Aramaic, Yeshua or Joshua. God is salvation. Jesus was born according to the promise. And Jesus stands and... He's the, he's the king. He's the, he's the king of God's people. Remember when Jesus, when he was crucified on the cross, even the pagan Pontius Pilate said on, on the, the accusations above his cross said, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Even he understood who Jesus was. That Jesus was the king, our representative before God. That even though we have broke God's covenant, Jesus lived without sin. So that Jesus was the son of David who perfectly kept God's commands so that God could establish in Jesus his promise to sit him on his throne forever. And because Jesus has rose from the dead after paying for our sins on the cross, he now has an indestructible life. Jesus can never die and therefore he guarantees that all who believe in him will one day rise from the dead and live forever with him. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. 
holy, completely, all sin, past, present, and future, forgiven by God. And he comes into your life by the Holy Spirit, and he changes your desires and your heart and the way you look at the world. And you become his child, and you become part of his family forever, and you become part of the kingdom of God. And one day our king's coming back for us. And if you're a citizen of his kingdom, that's going to be a great day. But if you're not, it'll be the worst day you could ever imagine. But the offer is free. It's free in Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. You can believe in Jesus the King so that you don't have to stand in your sins before God one day, but you can stand in Christ before God one day. And be for, you're forgiven of all your sins and part of God's family forever. If you don't know Christ today, I plead with you in Jesus' name that you would believe in him trust in him. Call out in your heart. Say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Change me from the inside out. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. I want to be yours. And you can be saved today and become part of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for your truth.